Welcome to another episode of the Sazma Podcast. Today, we have Dr. Jan Peters Medima, who is a cardiologist and since 2002 and is currently working in private practice at uh, Nedcape Bloberg in Cape Town. Today, we are going to listen to his conversation that he had with Prof. Michael Papadakis, a sports cardiologist based in, in St. George's University in London. And I'd like to just hand over to, to JP to, just to maybe go through his experience as a cardiologist and his move towards sports cardiology, and then maybe just introduce his guest, Prof. Michael Papadakis, after which we'll go into the into the recording that he had with uh, Prof. Papadakis with regards to pre-participation screening in our athletes as well as sudden cardiac arrest in our athletic population. Mm, thank you, Inish. And it's nice meeting you, finally face-to-face. I've heard many good things about you. Eh? Yeah, so my basic thing, my MBCHB was in Amsterdam at the Free University. And my first clinical rotation was in internal medicine. And part of internal medicine is cardiology. And then it, that's when I fell in love with cardiology. It was in the late 80s, basically. And ever since, I spent time with cardiologists at the university hospital and the cardiac surgeons and after finishing my uh, compulsory uh, military training in Holland, I ended up in a military hospital and got involved with pulmonology, cardiology, internal medicine, which opened the door to cardiology in one of the inner city hospitals in Amsterdam. And initially, I started in the Department of Cardiologic Surgery. And I'll never forget that one day in the elevator of all places, I met a head of cardiology who said, Smirma, you should actually change to cardiology. Why are you working cardiothoracic surgery? And I asked him to challenge me and tell me why I would change from cardiothoracic surgery, which they were like the, the kings in our unit. Uh, everybody looked up to the cardiothoracic surgeons. Why would I change to cardiology? I said, well, he said, we started an interventional program. and uh, We're collaborating with uh, researchers all over Europe. We've got, uh, we started stenting coronary arteries. We don't need bypass surgery anymore in the future. We'll completely replace you. I said, well, that's a, that's a valid reason. And they put in charge of research. Uh, in those days, we worked uh, with Patrick Sarais in Rotterdam. He ran the Benestan study, the first, I think, international study uh, looking at uh, coronary stents. Mm-hmm. That's where my journey in cardiology started. But after being on call for cardiology and the research arm of cardiology, I got a little bit tired and I wanted to get involved in clinical medicine and clinical cardiology. And a friend in Amsterdam who visited South Africa because he'd lived here and worked here as a teacher challenged me and he actually got me a job at Harangu of all places. And eventually everything came together and uh, I was allowed to practice at Harangu. I worked at Prof. Mohobo spent a wonderful six months and then completely unexpected overnight the door opened the Tigerberg Hospital. And I was on the phone with Pro Weich, the old uh, Pro Weich, the, the father of Helmut Weich, Helmut Sr., um, who had built cardiology at Tigerberg Hospital. And quite unexpectedly, uh, I ended up in 1993 at Tigerberg Hospital and the rest is history. Then they convinced me to stay. Mm. and train in internal medicine and spend much of time, much of my time in cardiology as well. We got involved in the research, looking particularly at tuberculous pericarditis and pleuritis, pleural effusions, did some studies. And then the, the, the Prof. Dubel, who took over from Helmut Weich, 
challenged me to do something with patients with congenital coronary anomalies. And that's when I started getting involved in cardiac MRI. And then I thought it would be good to have some exposure, proper training and certification of cardiac MRI. Door opened back in Holland and in, at uh, the Royal Brompton Hospital in London. And Prof. Dudley Pennell invited me to for the fellowship. And so that's when I developed my, my non-invasive skills at the Royal Brompton, later on at the Erasmus Medical Center in uh, Rotterdam, and eventually in Maastricht, where I spent a couple of years as well, and we looked at cardiac sarcoidosis. But my running, getting involved as an athlete myself, started in Pretoria at Garankua, and I, that continued here in Cape Town, and I got involved with local running clubs, road running, particularly later on trail running, and working as a cardiologist currently in private practice at Blauberg Hospital, we meet many athletes in the Blauberg area. There's many tri-athletes. Of course, there's the surfers and the kite surfers and cyclists and the runners. I become a member of our local running club. And many come to see us because they they feel tired or they complain about palpitations or shortness of breath. Many are overtrained, to be completely honest. That's when I decided to that I needed more skill, more formal training in sports medicine and eventually sports cardiology. And that's when I linked up with Jeroen Swart at CESA. And uh, I'm close to finishing my degree now in sports medicine, my MPhil. And over the last couple of years, we've studied quite a number of endurance athletes with uh, advanced cardiac ultrasound and cardiac MRI. And that's how I got to meet Professor Papadakis, who is our current guest. And Prof. Papadakis is the current president of the European Association of Preventative Cardiology. He's also the past chair of the European section on sports cardiology and exercise. And he runs the MSc Sports Cardiology Training at St. George's University. That's something I really hope to get involved in when I finish my formal sports medicine training here in Cape Town to become more complete in both sports medicine and sports cardiology. And, and Michael is an amazing human being. I think as a person, I really enjoy him and certainly as a cardiologist who's an expert in sudden cardiac death in athletes. He's, he's also involved in the CRI program at St. George's University. I didn't know, but in the UK, 12 to 14 youngsters die per week a sudden cardiac death. And years ago, he was one of the, the leadership who decided to start a charity called Cardiac Risk in the Young. And it's now formal screening of youngsters and relative of youngsters who die sudden cardiac deaths. And of course, from it also flows assessing the risk of sudden cardiac death in athletes. And, and that's how I got to interview Michael, because I think there's a lack when it comes to formal screening of athletes in South Africa. Through him, I, I got involved in CRI and I, I visited them in London. And in the near future, I hope to visit them again and really learn from them how they run screening of youngsters. There's nothing like preventing sudden cardiac death, if it's in the general population or in athletes. And we know now that athletes are more at risk mm. because they push themselves harder. And I think the idea now currently is that we will start a similar program here at the University of Cape Town and start screening student athletes. So that's my story in short. Yeah, JP, thank you so much. Yeah, I think the whole concept around 
the screening of the athletes is so important because it is something as sports physicians which we need to be quite comfortable with in terms of the process of screening, looking at the ECGs, looking for those common abnormalities that we might find in either an athlete or something that raises a flag. So yeah, I think let's jump into your recording with uh, Prof. Papadakis. I think it's going to give our guests or give our listeners uh, some very good insight into the science behind cardiac screening. So thanks so much, JP. Thank you, Yanesh. I always thought that sports, as you said, protects and that it reduces the long-term risk of cardiovascular disease, but a host of non-communicable diseases, including cancer. But recent manuscripts I read and seeing top athletes dropping, losing consciousness on the field and being resuscitated has given a lot of people second thoughts about the benefits and the risks as well of, of sports. Now, sports at any level, is it protective? Uh, and is there more benefit than risk? Or does it actually put it, puts it at risk? And is there something like something like too much exercise? Is there a limit to how much the average individual should exercise? I think it's important to highlight that in general, there is no doubt that exercise is beneficial for your cardiovascular health. And as you very correctly said, it goes beyond cardiovascular health as well. There is lots of evidence for it and there is very little doubt about it. And that's an important message to communicate to our uh, patients and to our athletes as well. And the other important message for me in terms of looking at our patient population is the message that you need to do very little to start getting benefits. So you could do as little as one third of the current WHO recommendations, which will refer to 150 minutes of moderate intensity exercise or 75 minutes of high intensity exercise per week. And you start getting benefit. The second message is that the more you do, for the general population, the more benefit you appear to get. And then we'll come to the question as to whether competing at elite level offers an additional benefit or may pose a risk that uh, reverse J curve that people are suggesting. I think the key message is that you don't need to do elite sport in order to get the benefit, okay? The second key message is that most people who participate in competitive sport that tends to also be associated with a certain lifestyle in terms of reducing the bad habits, whether that's smoking, whether that's alcohol, whether that's diet. So overall, they get a benefit. Whether they get much extra benefit from participating in elite competitive sport, I'm not certain about it. And I don't think that additional benefit is much more, to be honest with you. But whether there is a risk associated with it, I think that remains to be proven. As you very correctly pointed out, there are certain theories. So there are theories and, uh, in terms of whether athletes get more coronary artery disease and more coronary artery plaque. There is some evidence to suggest that elite athletes, middle-aged athletes, may be more prone to developing arrhythmias such as atrial fibrillation, for example. 
There are theories as to whether too much excess can lead to such significant adaptation of the size of your heart, for example, that may push you to a mild form of dilated cardiomyopathy. And there is also that theory of uh, potentially excess-induced arrhythmogenic cardiomyopathy. I think the best way I can put it to our audience is that perhaps aside from atrial fibrillation, the rest of the theories remain to be proven. And overall, we do have evidence to suggest that even the very elite of athletes, like cyclists who compete in Tour de France, overall, they tend to live longer, about five to seven years longer than individuals who don't exercise on a regular basis. So I think the key message is that exercise is definitely beneficial. Uh, whether elite sport is gives you that much added benefit, I think that's doubtful. But we don't have strong evidence to suggest that it causes a lot of harm. And the way I'll put it to you is that we've got cemeteries full of people who didn't exercise much. We don't have that many of people who exercised a lot. <laughs> Very correctly put. Now, tonight is focused particularly on sudden cardiac arrest and sudden cardiac death. And is there, the question is, the, is the intensity, the duration, and the type of exercise, or maybe the type of sports, uh, is there a relationship between the nature of sport, intensity, duration, and volume, and the risk of sudden, particularly sudden cardiac death? Um, so not so much cardiomyopathies, although, of course, cardiomyopathies put one at a higher risk, but the risk of collapsing, like we recently saw with the uh, Christian Eriksen and other elite soccer players in London, is there a risk between the, the type of sport, the intensity, the duration, volume? So I think the, the first message that we need to put across is that exercise itself is rarely uh, the cause of sudden cardiac arrest, sudden cardiac death. Usually, there will be an underlying cardiac condition which has not been detected. And as you very correctly mentioned, we've got cardiomyopathies such as hypertrophic or arrhythmogenic cardiomyopathy. We've got ion channelopathy such as long QT syndrome or CPVT. Uh, we've got uh, connective tissue diseases such as aortopathies. And we can also have acquired conditions such as uh, an old episode of myocarditis, for example, or an acute episode of myocarditis. So usually there will be an underlying cause. And the theory is that if you're on top of that underlying cause, you put the stress of acute exercise, then that may push your heart into potentially malignant arrhythmias and cause a sudden cardiac arrest and a sudden cardiac death. Now, if we take the overall instance of sudden cardiac arrest, sudden cardiac death, and try and see if we can make some association with demographics of sports, I think there is very little doubt that a sudden cardiac arrest, sudden cardiac death incident in males is greater than females. That's been observed in the general population, has been observed in the sporting population as well. And that ratio can be anything between one in three to one in nine that has been quoted by different studies. If we look at the age, 
Uh, the adolescent individuals may be a bit more predisposed. And again, that has to do with the underlying condition rather than exercise itself. So we need to be a bit more cautious with the younger individuals who have an underlying cardiomyopathy, for example. It's different to have an athlete who is 14 with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, and it's different to have an athlete who is 40 with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Okay? You need to have different degrees of caution. And then in terms of particular sports, it's predominantly the start-stop sports like uh, the mixed sports that you refer to, such as football, basketball, that seem to cause some concern. It's a bit difficult to know whether it's the high participation rates in the sports that cause the increased number. But overall, even if you correct for that, there seems to be a concern of that high-intensity interval training that those sports necessitate. In terms of resistance sports, or uh, like weightlifting, for example, uh, they're rarely associated with sudden cardiac death because of the conditions. Maybe it has to do with the heart rate that doesn't get particularly elevated or other causes. But essentially, in terms of sporting discipline, it is those start-stop sports that I'll be more cautious. So again, the advice that I usually give to my patients who have hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, for example, is that I would prefer them as a form of exercise if they do something that it's more endurance related with a more constant heart rate rather than that stop element that football, basketball and other similar sports uh, have. In terms of ethnicity, which is the last thing I wanted to uh, address, there is some indication from American studies that maybe individuals of uh, black descent have an increased incident of sudden cardiac death. But again, I will caution because of the flaws of the different studies that may depend on other factors as well, uh, rather than ethnicity on its own right. Yeah. How common, what are the numbers? How common is sudden cardiac arrest or death in athletes? I, I know there's a, a variety of ethnicities, countries, sports, ages. Is there a distribution? So per country, per sport, per age, sex, ethnicity, what's the numbers? Exactly. And the problem is that we've got a number of different studies that have lots of different populations. Yeah. And also they have a significant different methodologies in terms of defining their numerator, the number of arrests or deaths, and the denominator that numerator refers to. And that creates a big challenge. And if you look at the literature in the major studies, you will see quotes of incidents of anything from one in 300,000 person years to one in 10,000 person years. Then obviously that partly can be because of the different populations and different areas, because you may have like the, the hypothesis that in northern Italy, for example, ARVC may be more prevalent, while in the United States, which is a huge country, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy seems to be more prevalent. But I suspect a lot of it has to do with the methodology. Now, what I can tell you from our experience is that I think that actually sudden cardiac arrest, sudden cardiac death in athletic and non-athletic young individuals is probably more frequent than what we think. From our group, we've got two big cohorts 
that are cohorts that have already undergone screening and some individuals have already been excluded from sport or have been managed appropriately to ensure that we minimize the risk of malignant arrhythmias. And in the first cohort, which was a cohort of more than 11,000 uh, elite football players, keep in mind of a very young age, so the mean age was 16, so it was essentially adolescent individuals, the incident of sudden cardiac arrest and sudden cardiac death was in the region of 1 in 17,000 person years, not some person years, and from a cohort of screening individuals, which includes athletes and non-athletes, between the ages of 14 and 35, from our cardiac risk in the young screening program, which is a national screening program that we run throughout the United Kingdom, the incident again was in the region of one in 16 to one in 17,000 person years. Okay. So for me, I think that's roughly where the true number lies around the one in 15,000 person years. And I think it's important to recognize that. And it's also important to recognize that uh, we need to be accurate how we report the incident of sudden cardiac death. Because to say one in 17,000 persons is completely different to say one in 17,000 person years. Okay. And to try and put that in context, because someone hears thousands and thinks, well, actually, that's a very small number, nothing to worry about. If you take as an example the data we had from the Football Association and you say, okay, let's we screen an individual from the age of 16, a football player, and most of us will accept that they may get up to the age of 35, let's say. So they've got about a 20-year career in front of them. If you take those numbers, it can be as high as one in out of every two, two and a half thousand athletes that you screen at the age of 16 will not make it to the end of their career. Okay. And that brings it, I think, home in terms of how frequent sudden cardiac arrest and sudden cardiac death can be and the importance of trying to implement uh, prevention or preventive measurements in order to avoid those tragedies. Because again, the other thing to remember is that a 16 or a 20 year old has another 50, 60, 70 years to offer in terms of the life, the number of life years that he's going to lose compared to some of our patients in their 70s and 80s. Could you tell us more about the different etiologies? And again, that as you mentioned already, there would be a difference uh, depending on the population, the country, the province, the part of the country, the part of the which continent. There's differences probably between yeah, so, the yeah. and Italy and and United States. What are the most common etiologies, and how are they linked when it comes to age, ethnicity, and so on? So you're absolutely right that the etiologies tend to differ. As I said before, I suspect a lot of it has to do with methodology rather than population. But if you look overall on the etiologies, then we've got cardiomyopathies. Uh, we've got conditions such as hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, which cause excessive thickening of the heart and malalignment, if you want, of your myocytes and myocardial fibrosis, and that predisposes to arrhythmias and cardiac arrest. We've got arrhythmogenic cardiomyopathy, 
its name has changed over the years. It started with a condition that was predominantly responsible for uh, the right ventricle. So the names you may have heard will be arrhythmogenic right ventricular cardiomyopathy or arrhythmogenic right ventricular dysplasia. But now we know it affects both sides of the heart. So we move to arrhythmogenic cardiomyopathy. Uh, the HCM has been reported as a predominant condition in that large registry that uh, Barry Maron has been running in the United States, while arrhythmogenic cardiomyopathy has been the predominant cause in the large registry that uh, Domenico Corrado has been running in North Italy. In terms of other cardiomyopathies, they're not particularly implicated. Obviously, there is dilated cardiomyopathy, there is the left ventricular non-compaction, but they're rarely associated with sudden cardiac arrest or sudden cardiac death during sport. In terms, then, the other big group is the ion channelopathies. The main ion channelopathies to be aware is the long QT syndrome and the catecholaminergic polymorphic ventricular tachycardia or otherwise known as CPVT. These are the main two to be aware because these are the two that can be associated with sudden cardiac death during acute stress and adrenaline surges. There are other conditions such as Brugada syndrome, for example, or conduction tissue disease, but those are areas frequently associated with sudden cardiac arrest or sudden cardiac death during exercise. It's also important to note that in more recent registries, such as the ones we have developed in the United Kingdom, but also reports from collegiate athletes in the United States, it seems that the role of the ion channelopathies may be more important than what we previously thought. And I say that because if you look at the pie charts of the conditions they quote as cause of sudden cardiac death, there's a big chunk of it that says normal autopsy or what we would call sudden arrhythmic death syndrome, or you may have heard the term sudden unexplained death. And those are individuals who experience sudden cardiac death with no previous past medical history. Their toxicology screen is negative. Then they get to have an autopsy where the pathologist cannot identify any extracardiac or cardiac structural abnormalities. And then the assumption is that it was due to a cardiac dysrhythmia. And we know that if we go and screen the first-degree relatives of such individuals, and we have published experience in more than 300 families of such individuals, then in about 40-45% of the first-degree relatives, we may identify a nine channelopathy, and then we make the assumption that's the most likely cause of the loved one. Yeah. Apart from those big groups, then we've got smaller groups, whether it's valvular heart disease, for example, whether it's orthopathies, whether it's acquired conditions such as myocarditis and other conditions that may predispose to sudden cardiac arrest or sudden cardiac death. How important is genetic testing? I, I know you work in a research center and there's, uh, I think these unexplained deaths are often in a post-mortem fashion assessed for genetic causes and relatives then as well. But generally for us, uh, working outside of an, a center of excellence like you do, how relevant is genetic testing? When should we consider doing genetic testing? And we live in a country where genetic testing is quite expensive. Often these tests are sent overseas and we pay in dollars. How relevant is it in our setting generally? 
I think genetic testing is important and it is relevant and it's becoming even more relevant because of the increased availability and the gradually reducing cost, accepting the challenges that you just mentioned. On the other hand, I think it's important that we don't overplay its role in terms of providing a diagnosis for an individual and for an athletic individual. What do I mean by that? Um, We published last year a very nice a consensus document that was published in the European Journal of Preventive Cardiology addressing exactly that subject, genetic testing in the field of sports cardiology. And I will invite your audience to go and have a read because we try to separate it in very simple sections and there are a couple of nice diagrams and a very nice table that explains the role of genetic testing in sports cardiology. So if I try and break it down for you, the primary role of genetic testing, both in general cardiology as well as sports cardiology, is essentially for what I call familial cascade screening. What does that mean is that you've got an individual who gets diagnosed clinically with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, You do genetic testing and it comes back as positive in terms of identifying likely pathogenic or a pathogenic variant. So you know what's the variant, the genetic variant that's causing the clinical condition. And then you can use that test to genetically screen their first degree relatives and identify other family members who are at risk of developing the condition. So that's the predominant use. And that's how we use genetic testing up till now. Of course, as we learn more about genetic testing, because um, I think we can accept that we're still at infancy stages, but as we're learning more, uh, we can potentially use genetic testing for diagnostic purposes. That can become particularly relevant in sports cardiology, where uh, a lot of the time we've got that overlap between physiology and pathology. So we've got an athletic individual who has Uh, some abnormalities on the ECG, like T-wave inversions, and they may have a bit of increased wall thickness. We know increased wall thickness can go with exercise, but can go also with a mild type of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. So we've got that overlap, and we usually go and do our clinical testing, anything from echo to cardiac MRI to exercise testing to holter monitoring. And then we think, let's add genetic testing to see if it can help us differentiate. Now, I will caution with that because it can also lead to confusion because genetic testing is not necessarily a yes or a no answer. There is a spectrum from being completely negative to being very positive and helpful. Okay, And it's important to keep that in mind. And I will advise colleagues who look after athletes even if they've got experience in cardiac conditions, to do that in the context of a specialist center with the advice of a clinical geneticist or at least someone who has a very good understanding of inherited cardiac conditions, okay? Sometimes genetic testing can help with the management, can help with the diagnosis, can help with the management as well. A very good example would be long QT syndrome. And here is a condition. We've got a very good understanding of its genetic origins. We've got a high yield up to 80% if we've got a good phenotype. And it can help even with a borderline sort of phenotype to confirm the condition. 
it can inform us if it's long QT type 1, type 2, or 3, and therefore it can inform us as to the potential risk that excesses may or may not pose to it. We know that particular genetic phenotypes like long QT type 1 can be associated with sudden cardiac arrest, sudden cardiac death during swimming and diving into cold water. So it can even refine what sort of sport that individual may or may not be able to do. And it can also inform treatment. We know, for example, that certain medications like beta blockers can be effective in long QT type 1 and type 2, but less effective in long QT type 3, where exercise is less of a stimulus for arrhythmias. Okay? And that's why long QT syndrome is a nice example and gives us what the future looks like in terms of genetic testing, both in the field of general cardiology and sports cardiology. However, it's important to remember that for most conditions, we're not there yet, okay? And that's why it's important to do genetic testing and use it appropriately in the context of a specialist service. Very helpful. Thank you, Michael. Now, I know that through uh, CRY, you're quite you're involved with screening of youngsters for the risk of sudden cardiac death, and I know there was this a project with the elite young soccer players in the United Kingdom published in New England Journal of Medicine. The screening, I think, in Italy, screening in Israel, and maybe parts of the United States collegiate athletes. How important is screening for athletes from what age? What technology should we use? What's reliable? What's cost-effective? Now, that's, there may be major differences between Europe, United Kingdom, and the United States. And my last question in that respect would be what for us in South Africa would a screening be important and what would your opinion be about what technology should be used would be would be most cost effective and useful for us yeah so uh, how important screening is i think it's a bit of a subjective uh, question and i think if you bring three four five different experts here you'll get a different response uh, for me screening is particularly important in terms of prevention of sudden cardiac arrest, sudden cardiac death in young individuals. But I'll put it in a different prism as well in terms of detecting disease, if you want, in young individuals and allow them to make informed decisions about the sport participation and their overall lifestyle and life. Uh, that's how I view screening. So I don't necessarily view screening as a tool excluding people from sport. I view it as a tool to diagnose individuals with conditions and then to help them to come to an informed decision in terms of their participation in sport. And that doesn't mean only competitive sport. Now, in terms of the tools that we have available, I'm glad to say that actually one of the cheapest tools we've got in cardiology, which is the Humble 12-lead ECG, is potentially the most useful screening tool for detecting conditions that predispose sudden cardiac arrest and sudden cardiac death. And I will go as far as saying that unless you do a 12-lead ECG, my advice is that probably don't bother screening young individuals, okay? As you very correctly said, again, there is, a, there is a divide between the U.S. and Europe. Both the American Heart Association and the European Society of Cardiology admit that there is value to pre-participation screening as a preventive method, questionnaire, 
plus minus physical examination approach. Uh, and, the, and Europe emphasizes the need for 12 lead ECG. Uh, our approach in the United Kingdom and with the cardiac risk in the young program is that we put 12 lead ECG at the center of our screening program. So if you were to ask me, Michael, what's the one test? If I could do that, I should do is a 12 lead ECG. Okay. We do the questionnaire. Uh, and we will continue doing the questionnaire. We can discuss later what the future of screening looks like, but we do the questionnaire, we do the 12 lead ECG, and that's where we stop. And I think that's the most cost-effective and the easiest uh, way of uh, performing screening, even in uh, countries or circumstances where finances can be extremely challenging. And we have to admit that finances are extremely challenging everywhere. And I think it's that practicality of implementing ECG screening and the finances associated with that makes our U.S. colleagues sign away from it to some extent. Also, I have to admit that the reality in the U.S. is that everyone who does serious screening in athletic individuals, they actually use the 12-3 ECG. They don't stay only on the question and the physical examination. A couple of important points I wanted to highlight is that Although sometimes the questionnaire is pictured as something that it's easy to do, actually it's very challenging to take a good history, as we know from our cardiology practice, and it's very challenging to interpret symptoms as well. Okay, so uh, I, I would argue that it's challenging even for very experienced cardiologists. So I can't imagine how much more challenging it may be for a physiotherapist or a physiologist who may be doing the screening in the United States. Okay, uh, the second point to make is that if you're looking at cost, at face value, yes, ECG may cost a lot because the initial screening will be more expensive and you will probably refer more individuals to further evaluation. But if you look at the cost efficiency in terms of how much it costs to diagnose a condition, then by far the ECG screening is more cost efficient than doing a questionnaire. Okay, So my argument would be that if you're going to do only question and physical examination, one, you're spending much more money and secondly, you're not going to identify any conditions or you will identify very few conditions. And I will argue that you probably get into the trap of falsely reassuring individuals that they don't have an underlying cardiac condition that may predispose to sudden cardiac arrest and sudden cardiac death. So I'm a great proponent of the 12 lead ECG as a screening tool. Obviously, that doesn't mean that it doesn't have disadvantages. Of course, it does. And I could put a number of arguments in terms of the challenges that pre-participation screening of athletic individuals has, starting from the multiple conditions that we're looking for. We're just not looking just for one condition. We're looking for multiple conditions. The challenge is the interpretation of the ECG. So it's very important that whoever does the screening has the experience and has read the international recommendations for ECG interpretation in athletes that we published in 2017. And there will, of course, be a number of false negatives as well, because we're always concerned about false positives, that there will be false negatives as well. And there will be, obviously, the costs implicated in terms of uh, having the facilities, but also pro getting the further investigations done. And that's why it's very important that if you're going to start a pre-participation screening program, please 
don't just get an ECG machine and go around clubs doing ECGs. You need to have a system. You need to have a system of how you get started, how they get registered, and how you safeguard the fact that those individuals that you identify with an abnormal ECG go on to have their necessary investigations and get the right advice in terms of their condition, if they've got an underlying condition, and the sport participation to exercise. Yeah, excellent. Thank you. Very helpful, Michael. Now, we've spoken about screening. What about outcomes? So Christian Eriksen did well because there were medical teams available just next to the field, and thousands of individuals were watching. And he did well. He survived. And as another example of the soccer player in, in London who recovered. How, what's the survival rate of sudden cardiac death and the rest? And it probably depends on the arena. If it's in a, on a, a soccer pitch, professional soccer, it may be very different from run, running Cape Town Marathon or London Marathon. What's the reported survival rate of sudden cardiac arrest in sports, maybe the different sports? And what could we do to improve outcomes, and particularly uh, in South Africa? So to, to answer your question in a sentence, the survival depends on how good the resuscitation is, essentially. Uh, and it's all a time of, it's a matter of time. Uh, so uh, the first thing to say is that if you look at that prevention of sudden cardiac arrest and sudden cardiac death, we discussed about pre-participation screening. Obviously, it's very important if athletic individuals have symptoms of family history, they get investigated appropriately. And then we'll go to secondary prevention in terms of intervening when a sudden cardiac arrest has happened already. Now, the only way that you're going to be successful in that scenario is if uh, there is an emergency response plan, okay? If you haven't planned, you're not going to succeed. And you're definitely not going to succeed in high-pressure situations like the situation of uh, Christian Eriksen that you mentioned earlier. And it's worth watching that video because within that video, you can see how systematic the approach of everyone from players to referees to the medical team and the paramedics were in terms of assessing the individual and trying to deliver a quick shock. And as I said before, it's a matter of time. We know that we've got five, maximum 10 minutes. Beyond that, we're not going to achieve survival, or at least we're not going to achieve a meaningful survival, meaning someone who recovers with no significant or with minimal neurological uh, damage. Uh, so essentially what we need to have, we need to have an emergency response plan. We need to have a team that communicates appropriately between each other. They need to know exactly what their role is once that cardiac arrest happens, particularly if you're talking about venues and stadiums who have lots and lots of people in there. And we need to have, the key here is the application of an automated external defibrillator as quickly as possible, okay? And definitely below, below the five-minute mark. If we manage to apply the defibrillator, so early resuscitation, early CPR and early defibrillation quickly, then we've got studies that have clearly demonstrated that survival rates can be up to 60 and 80%, okay? With meaningful neurological recovery. And we've got studies within stadiums and athletic individuals. We've got studies 
from uh, a, a road events and marathon events, and we know that this is achievable. On the other hand, if we look at uh, the French study that looked at the overall population with the dreadful times in terms of both commencing CPR and doing a defibrillation, that ratio can go down to 10 and 15 percent. That's the difference. That's what we're discussing here. And that's why my message is that uh, you need to prepare if you're going to succeed. If you haven't prepared, you're not going to succeed. And that's exactly what happened with Christian Eriksen. That's exactly what happened with Fabrice Mwamba that you mentioned earlier. And on the contrary, if you go and look at the more recent videos of some of the basketball players in the United States or older videos of individuals having cardiac arrest, you can clearly see the inexperience, the disorganization, and the time it took for them to even realize that there was a cardiac arrest. Okay, and again, training plays an important role because you know me and you sitting at our desks, we can theorize about how easy it is to detect a cardiac arrest. But you will see that people going to epileptic like feet, they've got agonal breathing. They're very strong, athletic individuals. Look at the video of Fabrizio Mamba and see the challenge they had to even turn the player uh, on his back in order to start CPR. And you'll realize what the challenges are. So I think experience and organization is the message in order to deliver early CPR and as early defibrillation as possible. Thank you for clearing that. Now, South Africa is a sports match country, and particularly when it comes to running. So we have many races, road races, all kinds of distances. And it's not a week that goes by if we have a race this weekend, we'll have we hope to welcome you, by the way, in South Africa in the next 12 months and maybe take you up to Table Mountain as well. But we have lots of off-road races as well. And quite regularly, there's athletes who phone us with the question, well, I feel a bit fluish or I had a gastro, I've got a runny nose, I've got a burning chest, but I've trained for this race uh, for months or weeks and I'm looking forward to it. Uh, can I run? Is it safe? What could I do? When in your experience, when do you advise against taking part of an e in an event or even training? When should athletes hold back, particularly runners, endurance athletes? And when do you clear them? Because this uh, is a fear of myocarditis, yeah. basically. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's a difficult question, to be honest with you. I mean, obviously, my preference will be that anyone who feels unwell in terms of having uh, viral-like symptoms or gastroenteritis, as you say, uh, I would prefer that they recover completely before they go to highly competitive sport. But the reality is that the things are far more challenging and you gave some really nice examples in terms of the challenges that one may face. I, I, have, I think you need to look at the individual case and try and find the balance of, uh, I think if the individual is not having any significant systemic symptoms, uh, for example, fever will be one of them, uh, or if uh, in terms of a respiratory infection, we used to have the rule, and I think most of us still have the rule, that if you've got symptoms that are above your neck in terms of having a bit of a runny nose or a bit of sore throat, we will probably let you do it. But if you're having a significant cough and you're bringing up stuff, then we'll probably be a bit more reluctant. But to be completely honest with you, I, I mean, those are not things that have been studied or are proven. And that's why I say this should be on an individualized case. 
Uh, the reality is that getting myocarditis post-viral infection is a rare event. So, but in any case, I think if you've got an athletic individual who has some viral symptoms, you're fairly comfortable with it and they continue training and then they start experiencing symptoms such as shortness of breath, chest discomfort, palpitations. I think it's important for them, for you to allow, to tell them what are the symptoms they should recognize and when they should stop and come and find you if they develop those symptoms. I think as long as you advise them and you highlight the importance of recognizing those symptoms and the potential implications, most athletes will follow your advice. Thank you, Michael. Now, I've, I've compiled a list with questions, and, and one of the questions that came up was the this recent publications, and you, you wrote this magnificent editorial in the European Heart Journal on the study from Belgium that reported uh, that I think compared athletes who'd been pushing themselves on a bicycle 11 hours, I think, on average a week to runners who ran sub substantially less, lifelong athletes to people who more recently started before the age of 30 or the age of 30. And they reported in line with a study that came from the United Kingdom and a Dutch study from Nijmegen and then old studies from the United States that there's more calcium in the arteries of endurance athletes, and we encounter many endurance athletes in our practice, and, and running is so popular in South Africa, so this is something we deal with every week. But how worried should we be with those reports from Belgium and that they find calcium, but not just calcium, also mixed plaque in the proximal arteries of lifelong endurance athletes? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I, again, I think we need to take it into context. You're absolutely right that I think there is a fairly consistent message that uh, um, if you take an athletic cohort, as most studies have done, and you try and match it with a non-athletic cohort, then what the findings are that athletes tend to have more plaque in the coronary arteries. There are different theories, and they remain theories about it in terms of the uh, the sheer stresses, spasm of the coronary arteries due to non-laminar flow, exercise-associated hypertension, elevated levels of parathyroid hormone, take your pick. Uh, those all remain to be proven, but the message is that they tend to have more plaque and uh, they also tend to have more calcium. And the message uh, from our study led by Professor Sharma and Amar Megani, was that, yes, they tend to have more plaques, and up to 40% of uh, middle-aged athletes had plaque, compared to 20% of sedentary individuals, okay? But most of them had calcified plaque, okay? And as we know, the calcified plaque tends to be the most stable plaque, compared to the uh, soft plaques or the mixed plaques that are more prone to rupture. So, the message that those studies uh, sent across is that, yes, they may have more plaque, but they probably have more calcified plaque. So overall, it seems to be safer. Now, the study that you refer from our Belgian colleagues in the European Heart Journal comes to dispute that a bit and said, actually, we looked at uh, uh, athletic individuals, those who've been exercising since a young age, those who took exercise at a later stage, and a, a, a control group, and we actually didn't find that difference in terms of the calcified plaques. Yes, again, the athletes had more plaque, but 
they had similar amount of calcified plaques. And the, the, the novelty of the study was questioning whether actually exercise means that it uh, leads to uh, safer plaques, if you want, and reduce the chances of coronary events. I, I think the, the one thing to mention, which is something we wrote on our editorial as well, is that the, their control group was a very fit control group. Okay, so that was not a regular control group and it was definitely a far more athletic and fitter individuals than the control group we had in our circulation paper. All right. So there may be an argument again, similar to the, the discussion we we're having earlier about if you want the dose response relations in terms of exercise and cardiovascular benefit, that you may get the benefit up to a certain point, but beyond that point, you may get a bit of additional benefit, but maybe it's not that great. Okay. And I think that's what we need to keep in mind for the time being. The other thing I wanted to highlight is that we don't necessarily have evidence that calcify, calcium, if you want, in the coronary arteries of athletic individuals associate with increased risk of coronary events in a similar way that we definitely have in the general population. And I think that causes a bit of confusion in people because they know the studies in the general population. They have made an association between calcium and increased coronary events and then they see increased calcium in athletic individuals and they immediately assume that means increased risk of coronary events. But we haven't seen that and we need to be a bit cautious before we make that association. And that potentially brings me to a, 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 a third thing in terms of using calcium scores and CT scans in athletic individuals in screening the veteran athlete prior to events. And again, I want to caution individuals a bit up in terms of using the calcium score because you may actually identify athletic individuals who have elevated calcium scores that don't necessarily equate to increase the risk of cardiovascular events. So that's something to keep in mind if you're going to use calcium scoring in veteran athletes. So how do you, we see quite a number of, because of our research projects, but also because we have so many endurance athletes who've been mainly running, but quite a few cycling as well, or, be, or being triathletes. We follow them up, they come routinely in. I've picked up quite a few with obstructive coronary artery disease, and, and they had a history suggested that they weren't like as fit and well as a year before. But how do you, when you follow, like let's say, uh, athletes 45 years on, and older uh, endurance athletes who are active, like most days of the week, how do you follow them up? What additional tests do you use? When indeed would you use CT or invasive coronary angiography? What's the value of a stress ECG in these individuals? I, I, I mean, in my practice, if I've got another who has an elevated calcium score for one reason or another, then uh, I think you're obliged to proceed to do a CT coronary angiogram. I wouldn't go to invasive coronary angiography. Uh, I, I find value in the CT coronary angiogram uh, because it will give you a very good outline of the burden of plaque and the nature of the plaque, okay? Because essentially what we're looking for is for mixed or soft plaques, which are the high-risk plaques. 
It's also important to keep in mind that because we usually associate athletic activity with health, and that's absolutely right, but we need to remember that coronary artery disease and cardiovascular disease has a big genetic component into it, okay? We all have clinics of individuals who done all the right stuff their entire life and they get a heart attack in their 40s and individuals who have done all the wrong stuff in their life and they never get a heart attack and they live a full life to their 80s and 90s. So please don't forget that. And that's the important message as well is check cardiovascular risk factors, check for hyperlipidemia, check for impaired glucose tolerance, check for high blood hypertension in your athletic individuals. The fact that they're athletic doesn't make them immune for those risk factors. It doesn't make them immune for coronary artery disease. So just to answer your question, I still find value in exercise testing. It can give you a lot of information beyond the traditional ischemia and ST depression we're looking for. And we also know very well that the fitter you are in terms of the meds you're able to do in your uh, treadmill or your exercise test, the better your future prognosis is in terms of cardiovascular disease as well. And if I've got someone that I'm concerned about because they want to compete at high level, but they've got cardiovascular risk factors or other abnormalities, I think, to be honest with you, in this day of age, with the CT scanners that we've got available, where actually the radiation dose that you're going to get for the CT coronary angiogram on top of your calcium score, I'll go for that investigation on the understanding, of course, that the main difference between the two is that you require the IV contrast. Okay, which in itself, in a very small proportion of individuals, can potentially be associated with complications. But I think it's extremely rare, to be honest with you, in terms of both allergic reactions as well as uh, issues with uh, the kidney function. Now, so the, the research you've just mentioned is mainly generated in Europe, the United Kingdom, and the United States of America. There's, there seems to be very little uh, coming from other nations. What do we know about sudden cardiac arrest, sudden cardiac death outside Europe and North America, in Africa, in the Far East, in South America? And what do we know about its epidemiology, the prevention, management, outcomes? And then the next question would be, uh, isn't it time that we coordinate efforts and we do more research in the continent I, I live and work as well? Absolutely. And, and I think the, the, we've got more research from Europe and North America because of the resources, I suspect. But we do need more information. We've got some evidence in terms predominantly of Southeast Asia, for example, Australasia, uh, so on and so forth, and, and South America as well. Uh, but I agree with you. I think we need more evidence. Uh, uh, in terms of the instance of sudden cardiac death, in terms of potential different causes for sudden cardiac death in different populations, but also very importantly, we need to have really good evidence in terms of what's normality for different populations. And that gets me back to our pre-participation screening conversation. As you very well know, Zan Peter, for example, uh, the ECG of a black athlete seems to be more challenging than the ECG of a white athlete. And the same goes for the transthoracic cardiogram as well. And there may be confusion in terms of athletic adaptation of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. And uh, there's a very nice European Heart Journal paper as well that uh, demonstrated that he, they asked a question to us, what do you mean by black athlete? 
the North Africa compared to East Africa, compared to West Africa, compared to South Africa, is completely different. And if you go to North America and you try to define what's white or black in Brazil, they may find it extremely challenging, for example. So I think it's important to note that what we try to do is we try to associate skin color with uh, genetic pools, essentially, which obviously is a very rough indicator. And also it has worked for us here in the United Kingdom, maybe because we've got predominantly West African population. It doesn't mean that it works in other countries. So uh, I think it will be important, South Africa as an example, that you establish in your different populations within South Africa uh, what's normality so that we're able to uh, identify what's abnormal when you do your large population screening programs in order to identify disease and prevent such tragedies. Yeah, thank you, Michael. And we'd like your support and guidance in the efforts that we're currently started here in, in Cape Town. We'll what definitely be delighted to offer that. <laughs> now, uh, I've listened to talks that mentioned the shift, the current shift in patients with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy who were always barred from exercising. I recently encountered a lady who used to be an elite athlete and, and I think ended up in the top three or four of comrades, the oldest ultra marathon in the world and the largest probably in Durban. And she was barred because they diagnosed her with hypertrophic non-obstructive apical cardiomyopathy. But I listened to some of the presentations that mentioned the shift that cardiologists are more agreeable in allowing patients with certain types of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy to become more active physically within limits. When would you bar or discourage athletes or individuals from exercising with what cardiac conditions? Generally, I know there's a lot of detail that we can't discuss now. And then also when it comes to defibrillators, pacemakers, there's the story of Christian Eriksson, who in Italy was not allowed to continue his professional soccer career. In Holland, we have Danny Blind, who continued to play with an implantable defibrillator. And uh, Christian Eriksen now plays for Man United, and hopefully he's going to score many goals for Man United, although I'm not a Man United supporter. When would you discourage individuals with cardiac conditions from getting involved in like recreational uh, uh, sports, level sports or competitive sports? And when uh, would you discourage, like Patrick Mwamwa, for example, is a clear example. So he, he discontinued his, uh, his uh, professional soccer career. But Christian Eriksen continues. Where, where's the limits? When, gen just generally speaking. Yeah, so I, I, I think I'll go back to what I said initially, that pre-participation screening is about uh, individuals being able to make informed decisions. Uh, it's not about excluding individuals. Uh, I think it's true that we've taken huge steps over the past 10 years, moving from a very paternalistic approach where we excluded anyone who had any form of heart disease from competitive sport, essentially, to an approach that we admit that we are not a field that has a lot of evidence, and if you don't have a lot of evidence, it's very difficult to take away something from someone, okay? And I strongly believe in that. And I think that whether someone participates in sport and competitive sport, it will have to be individualized. So, of course, 
Go and look at the sports cardiology guidelines that we published in 2020, which outlines participation in exercise for all different conditions. So yes, it is a big document, but if you're interested in a particular condition like HCM, you can go to that particular section and look how the recommendations are. And the recommendations are not only for elite athletes, they start from recreational exercise and they go to elite competitive sports. So it's a very useful document. However, Again, we have to emphasize that if you look at the level of evidence for most of the document, the level of evidence is C. What level of evidence C means is that me and you are considered experts and we meet around the table and we start taking decisions, trying our best to interpret the evidence and the experience that we've got within the group. All right. Now, uh, with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, there has definitely been a huge shift. We used to exclude everyone, and now we restratify individuals. And if they're considered to be at low risk, we have a discussion with them about the potential risk, but they participate in competitive sport. Again, we can't put a brush for everyone exactly the same treatment because I highlighted earlier in our discussion that maybe we need to be a bit more cautious with start-stop sports. Maybe we need to be a bit cautious with adolescent athletes. And I said, it's not the same to have a 14 compared to a 40-year-old with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. It's completely different. So we need to take all that into account. If you wanted me to highlight one condition that I'm very conservative with, that would be arrhythmogenic cardiomyopathy. And I'm very conservative with that condition because we've got a reasonable evidence, admittedly a lot of retrospective data, that individuals who participate in high-intensity and competitive sport, they tend to expedite, if you want, the expression of the condition, and they tend to be at high risk of developing malignant arrhythmias, and as a result, potentially sudden cardiac arrest and sudden cardiac death. So that's the one condition I'm conservative with. I don't necessarily agree with the recommendation, the sports cardiology recommendation in terms of the genotype positive, phenotype negative individuals, because I think that's a more challenging subject and in a way contrasts the, the mission of genetic testing, which is to individualize treatment, not to pose the same treatment for everyone. And I find it very difficult to advise someone who hasn't even developed a condition to advise them against exercise. But for people who have a clinical phenotype of hypermogenic cardiomyopathy, I think we need to be extremely careful because the chances of that worsening with exercise and having a, a cardiac arrest or sudden cardiac death seems to be high. In terms of individuals who have an underlying an intracardiac defibrillator, an ICD, again, I think you need to individualize and you need to look at the underlying condition. Personally, I tend to be very conservative because by default, people who have an ICD, they are people who are considered at high risk, okay? I'm not going to put an ICD in a hypertrophic cardiomyopathy patient who is low risk. I've restratified them. I made the adjustment that they're a high-risk individual for arrhythmias, and I'm going to put an ICD. However, again, I would like to, so for example, I, I didn't look after Christian Eriksen. I don't know what his underlying condition was, but I suspect it may have been something that they considered that either was reversible. A good example would be myocarditis, for example, and it wouldn't have been arrhythmogenic cardiomyopathy. 
okay? And they decided that he could compete. O- overall, as I said, I-, I tend to be conservative. And the thing I wanted to highlight, however, is that remember that when an athletic individual comes to your office and asks you advice about competitive sport or not, he's not asking you what's the risk of my condition, okay? The two questions he's asking you is, if I continue exercising, do I increase my risk of having an arrhythmia and experiencing sudden cardiac arrest and sudden cardiac death? That's the first question. And if the answer to that question is no, the second question he's asking you, is my participation in competitive sport and intense exercise uh, going to make my condition worse, even if it doesn't kill me? Okay. And the problem with arrhythmogenic cardiomyopathy is that the answer to both of those questions is yes. For most of the other condition is probably no, but again, a bit of cautious because we've got studies in people with long QT syndrome and some studies CPVT that they say they do very well, but they do very well on good beta blocker therapy. Okay. And you, and Peter, and others who have dealt with athletes will know how challenging it can be to get an athlete and keep an athlete on beta blocker therapy who's trying to compete at elite level. Yeah, that's nearly impossible. Now, it's been an, a most uh, interesting evening. I can continue to, to chat with you for hours, probably, but we don't have hours. But we, we can't finish probably without touching on COVID, heart disease, athletes, myocarditis, sudden cardiac death. There's been so many stories. And on a daily basis, we still meet encounter patients who accuse the COVID vaccines for uh, cardiac arrhythmia, sudden death, myocarditis. What's your experience? What's your vision when it comes to COVID and is and, and the role of the vaccines in risk of sudden cardiac arrest? Has there been an increase in of uh, in when it comes to the incidence of sudden cardiac arrest and deaths in athletes during or after COVID? Does it have anything to do with the virus or with the vaccine? The simple answer to your question is that no, there was no increase in the incidence of sudden cardiac arrest, sudden cardiac death in athletic individuals during COVID. And that's a categorical no. Okay. Now, there is obviously no doubt, and this is very well established, that both the virus as well as the vaccine or some of the vaccines predisposed to myocardial inflammation and myocarditis. Uh, There is also some evidence from large cohorts from Israel and other places that individuals, in terms of the vaccine, who may have a higher uh, chance of developing myocarditis are the young male group, the ones between the ages of 20 and 30, okay? But even if you look at that incidence, we're talking one in 2,000, one in 5,000, one in 10,000. We're not talking 5, 10, 20%, okay? So it's important to keep that in mind. Yes, of course, both the virus and the vaccine can predispose to myocarditis. In terms of the vaccine, the young males seem to be a bit more predisposed compared to other age groups. But overall, it still remains extremely rare. And there was definitely no incidence of sudden cardiac arrest or sudden cardiac death in athletic individuals. To be completely honest with you, and this is very anecdotal, 
even for certain players that something happened to them and came in the news during the COVID pandemic or just after the COVID pandemic and COVID was implicated, for some of them, either in the wider community we knew or some of them I treated myself as well, and there was a predisposition, there was a problem in the back that came on that particular occasion. So overall, I think it was... As with everything with COVID, to be honest, you will probably remember that initially we thought that everyone who gets COVID gets myocarditis because they had troponin release in the hospital. Or some MRI studies suggested that everyone had elevated T1 mapping values or T2 mapping values, which means fibrosis. So everyone with COVID got fibrosis. But I think we've got to learn that's clearly not the case. Yeah, so that's very reassuring. Yeah, thank you so much, Michael, and, and thank you for taking just over 60 minutes to communicate, to, to share your knowledge and vision and ideas with us. And we've learned a lot, and we hope to see much more of you and then this side of the pond, basically. Thank you so much. Most definitely. Thank you very much for having me, Jan Peter. And if anyone wants any experience in sports cardiology, they're more than welcome in London and they're more than welcome in RMSC Sports Cardiology as well. We hope that many of us will. Yeah. Yeah. See you soon. See you. Yeah. Bye.